Hey, good morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, we are in Genesis chapter 41. If you are just joining us or visiting this morning, we've been going through the final section of Genesis on the life of, of Joseph. Uh, this week we're in chapter 41, and I want to give just a, a quick recap of things that we've talked about um, because this is all a part of one story, uh, Joseph's life. So quick recap, um, Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. Uh, he was Jacob's favorite son, and I believe he was, from what we read and can make of it, um, seems to have been a, a very spoiled child. Joseph's brothers um, despised him, and probably part of that was because of the father's special treatment of Joseph, and the other part was probably because Joseph really was a brat to his, his brothers. Um, we read in chapter 37 that Joseph had two dreams, and those dreams essentially were that his brothers and his father uh, would bow down to him. And that was sort of the final straw for his brothers, and they decided that they would be rid of Joseph. So one day, um, his father sent him to his brothers. His brothers were out uh, shepherding, uh, and as Joseph was coming and they saw him in the distance, uh, his brothers decided that they would kill him. So by the time he got here, um, got to them, they changed their mind on killing Joseph, and they settled on selling him into slavery. So Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Joseph ended up in Egypt. Uh, he was bought by Potiphar. Potiphar was one of the captains in Pharaoh's guard. So Joseph would spend years as a slave of Potiphar. One day Potiphar's wife made some accusations against Joseph. They were not true, saying that he tried to take advantage of her. Uh, she told Potiphar. Potiphar was angry um, and threw Joseph in jail. Uh, there Joseph would spend even more years as a prisoner. Um, what we've seen is that both as a slave and as a prisoner, the Lord was blessing the work of Joseph and, and doing that in such an incredible way that even the Egyptians noticed that the hand of Joseph's God was on him. Uh, in prison, Joseph would meet uh, Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer, and these were men who were very close to the Pharaoh. Pharaoh uh, was upset with them and threw them in jail. Uh, each of them had a dream, a different dream, and there were no interpreters of dreams in the prison, and so they turned to Joseph, and Joseph said, hey, tell me the dream, and my God will give us the interpretation. Um, and so Joseph interpreted their dream. The baker would be hanged by Pharaoh in three days, uh, and in the same three days, the cupbearer would be restored to his role with Pharaoh. Those things happened exactly as Joseph said that they would. Now, before the cupbearer was restored to his place, before he left prison, Joseph had pleaded with him to remember Joseph. When you are free, when you are restored to your place with the Pharaoh, um, remember me. Remember me in this prison. I don't deserve to be here. I've done nothing wrong. I should not be in this pit. We closed out chapter 40 with uh, the words, but the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. That's where we pick up um, this morning, 
10 years or more have passed uh, as we come to chapter 41 and uh, this turning of the tide, if you would, in Joseph's story. Look at, look at our verses, um, chapter 41, beginning in verse 1. After two whole years, so two years after the cupbearer was set free, two years after Joseph said, remember me, two more years in prison for Joseph. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly, thin cows ate the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So let's pause right there and talk about a couple of things. First of all, Pharaoh's dream. And again, um, in, in their culture, those dreams were seen as communications from their, their gods. And man, this was quite a dream or, or two dreams that the Pharaoh had. Seven cows coming up out of the river, attractive and plump. That's what I'm going for. Attractive and plump. Did that not stand out when I was reading that a minute ago? It's like... Wow. Um, then seven thin and ugly cows come up, and they eat the plump cows. And then the, the, the same with ears of grain. There are seven good and plump, and then seven thin and blighted, and the seven thin swallow up the seven that are good. Um, now, I, not only were dreams uh, really important to the Egyptians, but they had professional uh, dream interpreters. So when they weren't sure what a dream meant and what the gods were trying to communicate to them, they would, they would call on one of these pr professional interpreters to help them with that. Um, this passage, uh, Pharaoh has these dreams. He, he is troubled by them, doesn't know what they mean. And, and so he calls the magicians and the wise men, and these are the dream interpreters. The magicians and the wise men, he calls all of them from all of Egypt to come and hear his dreams and help him understand what the gods are telling him. So he tells them, and amazingly, not a single one in all of Egypt could or would interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And so Pharaoh, as we read, was troubled. Now, this, Pharaoh's dream, plus the fact that no one could interpret Pharaoh's dream, and Pharaoh being troubled by all of that, leads us to the next point, and that is uh, Joseph being remembered. Joseph is remembered. So verse 9, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief uh, baker in custody, custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. 
And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. So finally, right, Joseph is finally remembered. Um, and it, it is all of these things happening that jar the memory of, of the cupbearer. It's like, oh, yeah, hey, Pharaoh, I remember. Remember that time that you got angry with me and you threw me and the baker into prison? We met a guy there in prison, and he interpreted my dream and the baker's dream. He interpreted both of them, and he was right. He was dead on with both of those dreams. Like, like now, two years later. He remembers Joseph. Now, I want to I pause here and ask some questions and, 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 and help us think about what we're reading and seeing in this. Um, it, it doesn't mention as we go through, and it, and it hasn't for the whole of Genesis. Like every time something happens, uh, we don't read, and God made this happen, and God did this thing. But all of that is meant to be seen. We are meant to see the hand of God in all of the events that are taking place. So I want to make sure that we see the hand of God in, in these events. It would be easy to read the story of Joseph as we have been doing and, and to think, man, things are, are finally falling in place for Joseph. What, what, what great fortune, what good luck that Joseph is having. And things are falling into place, but we shouldn't think of it as good luck at all. We are meant to see this as God sovereignly and graciously working in all of those things to bring about his purposes. It is God who is with Joseph. That's what we're meant to see. The God who promised his great-grandfather a people too numerous to count. The God who promised his great-grandfather Abraham a land and who promised him that, that through him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. That God worked in and through Abraham and through his son Isaac and through his, his grandson Jacob. And now, now he is working through Joseph to bring about all of those promises, or at least to take one step closer to the fulfillment of those promises. So, so, so think about this. Dreams and dream interpretation, as, as we've been talking about, very prominent in Egypt. Pharaoh, the Pharaoh has this dream. He calls all of the wise men and, and all of the magicians, all of the people, the professional interpreters of dreams. He gathers all of them from all over Egypt, and not one of them. Not one of them had an interpretation for the Pharaoh. Not one of them, hearing the dreams of the Pharaoh, thought, hey, I, I think I've got this one figured out. Now, I have to think that that is really strange, that this is not a common occurrence. The, the, the text doesn't tell us that, but I think it's implied that this is, this is an odd situation that no one can interpret Pharaoh's dream. No one. Again, I believe this is the hand, the, the hand of God, the sovereign and gracious hand of God working to bring about his purposes and his plans. I believe he was shutting the mouths and the minds of the magicians and the wise men so that Pharaoh would be left alone with his dreams. So that Pharaoh would be left alone with his dreams and, and would be deeply troubled. 
Think about this as well. Doesn't it seem odd that Joseph would interpret the cupbearer's dream and three days later it would come to be, right? Three days, not very many days. He tells the cupbearer and the baker, these are the interpretations of your dream. And to the cupbaker, uh, the cupbaker, to, to the cupbearer who, who he said and knew in the interpretation would be restored to Pharaoh, um, he, he told the cupbearer, remember me. Like when you are restored, remember me. I don't belong in this pit. I, I am an innocent man. Remember me when you were back with the Pharaoh. Only three days later, he has completely forgotten Joseph. Doesn't that seem weird? Now, I, I, like if it was me and somebody interpreted my dream and, and your dream, and in your dream, he said, yeah, you're going, to be, you're going to be hanged and you will die. And in my dream, he said, you're going to be restored to the Pharaoh. Like three days later, if those two things happened, I would be so freaked out and amazed that I would be telling people. Like I would remember, I would not forget in three days what happened. I, I, again, I, I don't think that this is an accident. I think what we see is the sovereign hand of God. How could he forget? How could he forget that quickly? If he had remembered three days after this happened, if he had remembered three days after Joseph had interpreted his dream, two years prior to this, right? If he had remembered that day without the uninterpreted dreams of Pharaoh, do you think Pharaoh would have cared? I don't think Pharaoh would have cared. There's no connection with Joseph. Oh, that's a great story. Who cares? A slave is in prison. Who cares? Again, this is the sovereign and gracious hand of of God. And if the cupbearer had brought it up those two years earlier, and the Pharaoh had said, who cares? Great story. Do you think he would have brought it up again two years later? I don't think that he would have. I think what we see is the the hand of God sovereignly and quietly working for just the right time, for just the right time. And, And to me, that is amazing. I think we're supposed to see that in this story. So let's keep going. Um, Let's keep going. Joseph's interpretation and wisdom, beginning in verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you, uh, of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. But God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And we shouldn't miss that, right? Two years, two years have gone by. Two years after he had said, remember me when you are restored to Pharaoh, and he was not remembered, two more long years in prison, and Joseph is still praising God. That's what's happening. When he's saying, like it would be so easy for, for us, if you think about it, for somebody to say, hey, I hear you interpret dreams. When people share their dream with you, you are able to interpret it. It would be easy to say, yeah, I've done that a couple of times. That's not what happened. Joseph said, no, it's not, it's not within me to do that. But God, God, Elohim, 
my God, the God of the Hebrew people, he will give us an answer. Two years, two years that he has been in prison, plus the 11 years before that, that he was a slave and a prisoner, and he still has faith in God. Strong and bold faith in God. It isn't in me, Pharaoh, but my God will give you your answer. So Pharaoh tells Joseph what he has dreamed about. We skip down to 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he, God, is about to do. Verse 28. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will, will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So Pharaoh, God is telling you what it is. God is telling you what it is that he is about to do. There will be seven years of plenty. God is going to bless us, bless you with seven years of plenty. And that will be followed by seven years of terrible famine in all the land. Verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers of the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That that food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This, this, this is amazing. Now, Joseph interprets the dream, we just talked about that, by God's grace, right? There's going to be seven years of plenty, and then it's going to be followed by, by seven years of a terrible, terrible famine. But, 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 but what is more incredible to me is the wisdom that Joseph shows as he then tells the Pharaoh, here is what you should do right? He, here is what the dream means. Now, Pharaoh, here is what you need to do with this information. Now, I, I want to, I again, point out the hand of God in all of this. I don't want us to miss it. So I, I want you to think with me about things that we have already seen. I want to ask you some questions to help you think through it. If we go back to the story of Jacob, that was Joseph's father. Um, we, we've studied that already. But if we go back to the, the story of Jacob, Jacob was sent away from his home by his parents to escape his brother Esau, who was very angry and wanted to kill him. He was sent far away to distant relatives, and there he was supposed to find a wife as well. So, so Jacob does that, and that's where he meets his wives. He, he marries Leah and Rachel. But, but before he can leave with his wives, he has to serve his father-in-law there. And so for years, he serves his father-in-law before he leaves. Do you know what his father-in-law did? His father-in-law was a shepherd, okay? His father-in-law was a shepherd, and he served his father-in-law as a shepherd for years. He learned how to shepherd as a young man, 
And when you read the story of Jacob, if you think back or you go back and you read the story, um, there, there was a time when, when uh, his father-in-law was trying to take advantage of him and, and, and he showed great wisdom in, in the mating of the sheep and the goats and, and, and he prospered. So he learned from his father-in-law shepherding, and he learned all sorts of stuff about shepherding and how that should go, and the Lord blessed his hand. So when Jacob settled with his wives, when he settled with them, he taught his sons to do what he did, and that was shepherd. So, so one of his sons is Joseph. Joseph had, had learned to shepherd. Joseph had gone out to meet his brothers and take news to him while they were shepherding. And, and, and it was then that they took him and sold him into slavery. So their family trade was what? Shepherding. Shepherding. And, and, and yet immediately... Joseph has this incredibly wise plan for crops and grains for Pharaoh. How do you think he came about that wisdom? Now, we, we, we could rightly say that God gave him the interpretation, and, and it was God who not only gave him the interpretation, but also gave him the wisdom. And I think that that would be fair. But think with me about what Joseph has just been through. All of those years with Potiphar, where, where was it that we talked about slaves starting their service? It was in the fields of their master. Do you think that, that, that maybe, just maybe, God was teaching Joseph hands-on what he needed to know about crops? Isn't that, isn't that incredible? Teaching a shepherd teaching a shepherd about growing and harvesting. I think that's incredible. And, and, and beyond that, the, the details, right? I know we don't have a lot of details that are given here of, of what he tells the Pharaoh that, that he should do, but, but what we do have a few details, right, of, of, of what he should do, how he should gather. How would this spoiled son of, of a shepherd have such organizational wisdom? Now, listen to me. It's not just, it's not just uh, organizational wisdom in the moment, though it is there. There, Joseph would ultimately be, be put over all of Egypt, the entire nation of Egypt. He would be put in charge of the entire nation to organize what, what, what this would look like, how much needed to be stored, what needed to be built in order for it to be stored. All of that would fall on him. How would this spoiled son of a shepherd know how to organize and move people in that way? Overseeing keeping, keeping a fifth, gathering, storing, establishing a reserve. How in the world would he know all that? Could it be that these were the things that he learned as he served as the overseer of Potiphar's house? Is it, is it, is it maybe that God was using his time in jail as he was the overseer of the jail and all of the prisoners and everything that took place there? Could it be that God was using that to teach him the organizational skills that he would need to do that? 
And I, I love this too. Joseph said to Pharaoh, right, after, after he told him everything, he said, now, Pharaoh, here's what you should do. What you should do is select a discerning and wise man and set him over all of the land of Egypt to do these things. Now, think about this too. Pharaoh had just gathered all the magicians and the, and the what of Egypt? The wise men. Pharaoh had just gathered all of the wise men of his nation and shared with them his dream. And not one of them, not one of them could interpret the dream. Not one of them was discerning enough to say, here's what this means, Pharaoh. Who did, who did that leave? Joseph. Choose the wisest and most discerning. Joseph. The remainder of these verses give us a summary of, of everything that happened next. We, we see Joseph is given the place of authority. Pharaoh sets, um, sets Joseph over all of the land of Egypt. Pharaoh even gave Joseph a wife, changed his name, gave him an Egyptian name. Verse 46 tells us that, that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered into the service of Pharaoh. 30 years old and Joseph is made number two in command over all of Egypt, 17 years old when he was thrown into the pit by his brothers. Now he is 30. Verse 50 says, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Um, Asenath, the, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Verse 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain. Because the famine was severe over all the earth. Absolutely amazing. God has done in all of this what only God could do. God took this spoiled son of a shepherd and raised him to, to, to unimaginable power, the second in command of all of Egypt. Only the Pharaoh could speak over Joseph. And whatever Joseph said to do, that's what the people were to do. Whatever Joseph said, that is what Egypt did. But God did more than that. God did more than that. Through this spoiled son of a shepherd, God was raising up a nation. He was really raising up two nations. God was raising up Egypt because of the wisdom and the plans of Joseph. All gracious gifts of God. This was God showing Pharaoh what was about to happen. This was God through Joseph saying, do these things, Pharaoh. Prepare for this famine. All by the gracious hand of God, Egypt would grow into a, a, a powerful nation. They, they were already powerful, but they would become wealthier. They would become even more powerful. Verse 57 says that all of the earth came to Egypt. 
to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was so severe over all the earth. Pharaoh would rise to, 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 to a place of prominence that he had never been before. As powerful as he had been, because of this, because of this, he would be even more powerful. But as powerful as he was, as powerful as he would be as a leader, as the leader of Egypt in this time, Pharaoh was never as powerful as Joseph's God. And we are meant to see that. We, we are meant to see that. No matter how powerful that Pharaoh would seem, it was God who was always in control. God was the one who was in control. Pharaoh had no idea that the famine was coming. No idea at all. It was God who gave him the dream. It was God who, who was preparing him for what was about to happen. It was God who shut the minds and the mouths of the wise men. It was God who reminded at just the right time the cupbearer of Joseph, the young Hebrew that he met in prison. It was God who gave Joseph the knowledge of the, the interpretation and, and, and the wisdom for everything that he said that Pharaoh should do. God had been working in all of those 13 years from, from the pit to Joseph's rise and, and prominence for 13 years that we have recorded here in the book of Genesis. God had been working, but even more than that, God had been working and has been working from the beginning of time. All of history that we read about in the book of Genesis shows us the powerful, mighty, sovereign, good, and gracious hand of God. The passers-by who, who bought Joseph from his brothers, that they were no accident. They didn't just happen to come by at that time. Potiphar's purchase of Joseph was, was not without the presence of God. God was there in that. Jail was also a part of his plan. There he would continue to prepare Joseph for just this day, moving him into, into this place of trust and leadership, teaching him, bringing him the baker and the cupbearer, people, people who were close to the Pharaoh, giving them dreams while they were in prison and giving Joseph the interpretation. And in all of that, Pharaoh had no idea. It was God who was at work raising up Egypt, but it wasn't just Egypt that was being raised up, and, and, and we will see that if we continue to read the Old Testament story. It was through this story, through Joseph's story, that Jacob's family would come to Egypt. We'll read about that, and through their time in Egypt, this family would become a people. This family would become the Hebrew people. A, a, a people who would, just as promised, one day become a nation, Israel. And through them, through Jesus, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. God was raising up Egypt and, and, and forming the perfect place for Jacob and his family to become the Hebrew people and one day be the nation of Israel. All of that involved Joseph. Joseph being, being sold into slavery by his brothers. Joseph being wrongly accused by Potiphar. Joseph being wrongly imprisoned. Joseph being forgotten in prison for two full years. All of that, the sovereign working of God. Who, who could ever weave together a story like this one? 
Only God. Only God. We've asked as we've gone through um, Joseph's story, and, and we'll continue to ask all the way through, why would this story matter to Israel? That's, that's who this was written for originally, for the Hebrew people after they were set free from 400 years of bondage in Egypt as they wandered through the wilderness, as they headed to the promised land. That's who this was written for. And as I've said, I, I believe fully one of the main reasons that this was written was to call God's people to faith, to remind them of their history, to remind them of who God was and everything that he had done for them, to, to, to remind them that he was with them, to call them to believe and to trust in him. So I thought about their journey from Egypt to the promised land this week, and, and, and I had several what-if questions, and I, I just want to share them because I don't have the answer, but I think they are good questions. What if they had believed? What if when, when, when God's people, the Hebrew people, were set free from their bondage in Egypt and they, they traveled to the promised land, what if they really had believed? What if they had believed? What if they had believed that their God was greater than Pharaoh? What if they really believed that greater than any king or greater than any army, greater than even nature, greater than, than the seasons, greater than floods, greater than famines? What might have been different for them if, if when God first introduced them to the promised land, the land that he said, I, I will give you a land and, and I will bless you. What if, what if when they reached that place and they were introduced to the promised land, what if they believed that it was, it was him, it was God who raised up nations and God who brings them down? What if they had trusted I want to read, I want to read what happened, what happened, right? Not, not what might have happened or could have happened, but what actually happened. And we read this in Numbers 13 and 14. They, they are at the door to the promised land, and Moses sends spies into the promised land. And the spies go in, and, and, and they are amazed, overwhelmed with how amazing and fruitful the land was, flowing with milk and honey. Numbers 13, verse 27, and they came back and reported to him and said, we came into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and, and, and this is its fruit. They brought back fruit for everyone to see. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified, and they're very large, and indeed, we, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the, the Jebusites, the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea, by the side of the Jordan. And they bring back the report, and Caleb pleads with them. Caleb pleads with them, let's get ready to fight. Let's go, let's get ready for battle. Let's go and take the land that has been promised to us. Our God is good, and he has said, this is your land. I'll give it to you. Let's go. And the spies rebelled. They said, wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the, the people who live in the land, the, the cities are large and the cities are fortified, but the people who live there are like giants and there is no way that we can take them. We are like grasshoppers before them. Chapter 14, 2. 
And all the sons of Israel, right, this is what they went back and told the whole crowd of Israel, all the people, all of the Hebrew people, and all of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the entire congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt. It would have been better, Moses, if we had just stayed slaves in the land of Egypt or even if we had died in the wilderness. And they refused to enter the promised land because they did not believe the promises of God. Because of their lack of faith, the spies would die from a plague. The generation who witnessed the miracles, y'all, y'all, they had witnessed the hand of God in, in their being set free from, from the bondage that they were in in Egypt. They, they saw, they witnessed the plagues of Egypt. They witnessed the plagues of Egypt. They, they saw God with them when they came to the Red Sea and he parted the Red Sea. And, and they were there and they saw the Red Sea come crashing down on the heads of the Egyptian army. They were there and they witnessed it all. And they said, there's no way we can take these people. That entire generation would die never entering the promised land. Their people would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. What if they had believed Joseph's story? What if they had believed that it was God working in all of those things to raise up nations, that it really is God who raises up nations and God who brings them down? What, what if they had been able to see the tapestry of events that God used in Joseph's life and believe that he had, he had done all of that and that that is a part of what was happening with them. That, that the events of Joseph's life were a part of the events of their lives and, and, and God was doing the same thing for them. What if they had, had seen that even in their difficult days and even when they were uncertain, their God has always been faithful? What if they had seen and believed that God was faithful to Joseph and God would be faithful to them? He was faithful to Joseph and Jacob and Isaac going all the way back to Abraham. He was faithful and true to every promise that he ever made. What if they had trusted God? The same is true for us. This story is calling us to the same faith and the same trust meant to draw us to believe in the promises of our God, to trust our sovereign Father who is, who is good and faithful and true, our God who is always at work even in our sufferings, our God who is able to work all things together for good even when we have no idea how because he has promised he would do exactly that. Now, I, I, I want to say something here that came up in our missional community, and this is why we need missional community, y'all. The truth of who God is and this call to faith is not meant to make little of your suffering. Do you hear me? This story is not meant to make little of your suffering. It isn't a way of saying, stop pouting and just believe. That's not, not what's happening here. 
Joseph's suffering was very real. And, and we should see that it was very real. And we should, we should understand in our lives that our suffering is very real. The suffering that Jesus went through was very, very real. Joseph's suffering. I, I, am, I am sure that there were many nights when Joseph cried because of the rejection of his brothers. I'm sure that there were, there were nights, days, maybe weeks of depression because he felt that not only had his brothers left him, but God had left him as well. The hurt and the sadness are real. And I've said this before and I say it again, I think they are gifts from God. I think they are gifts from God, gifts in the sense that they remind us of the brokenness that we live in. That's what I mean by that. They, they, are, they are reminders for us, our pain and our suffering. They are reminders for us of the broken world that they live in. They are gifts that scream to us, this is not the way that things should be. Brothers should not do this. Brothers should not sell their brother into slavery. People were not meant to be slaves. Sin should not be, and so prison should not be, and certainly prison for an innocent person. This injustice should not be. Weeping is right. Sadness is right. But it is meant to drive us to the one who is able to comfort mourners. And I think what we see in Joseph, though it doesn't say this, I'm reading it completely into this story. But I think what we see in Joseph is that his suffering did not drive him away from God. His suffering drove him to God, to the God who is able to comfort mourners, to the one who is able to mend the brokenhearted to the one who is, is ultimately and the only one who is able ultimately to right all the wrongs. It is, it is meant to drive us to the hope that we see in Joseph's life. Our God has not left us, just like he had not left Joseph. Our God has not forsaken us. Our God is faithful and true, and he is with us even in the darkest of days, and one day he will fix this mess. He has promised it, and even now he is working. Just like he was when Joseph was in the pit, just like he was when Joseph was sold to Potiphar, just like he was when Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house, just like he was when, when Joseph was falsely accused and imprisoned, just like he was when the cupbearer forgot him for two full years. Like the story of Joseph, there are things that we can look back on and say, yes, I see the hand of God at work. Others we are left to, to, to trust, to believe, and, and to trust that, that God is indeed faithful and true. We see his hand, for example, fixing the brokenness in the coming of Jesus. Jesus would come to redeem us from our sin, the only one who can redeem us from our sin, to grant us righteousness and to restore us to the Father. That's what his life, death, and resurrection are all about. 
It is about God doing what only he can do to rescue and redeem us. And so we can look back. We can look back to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and say, I see the hand of God to save me. I see the hand of God to love me. We cling. We cling now even in suffering to the hope of his promises, just like Joseph did. We cling to the hope of his promises, the, 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 the promise of the one who is faithful and true, Jesus coming back. That is the promise. One day he will return. He is coming back, and when he comes back, he will come to crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, to defeat his enemies and to wipe away every single tear, to turn our mourning into laughter and to fix all of this brokenness. Believe. Trust in the sovereign, gracious hand of your Father who loves you and is working even in the darkness, working all things together for good. Believe, believe this good news. He is faithful and true. I think that's the call of Genesis chapter 41, to see the hand of God and believe to see the hand of God and trust even in the darkest of circumstances. And, and, and more than that for us, to help others do the same. To help the people around us who wander in darkness to see that God is faithful and true. And his love is genuine and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. To help them as well. To know that God is working, doing the impossible, even in the darkness, believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. That even when the darkness feels overwhelming, we have a God who is bigger. And we have a future that is promised. One day all this brokenness will be fixed. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll remind us of, of this story of, of Joseph when our days seem dark. Not that that means that our, our dark days will not be without pain and suffering. That is very real. But, but Holy Spirit, help us in our pain and suffering to remember this story and to believe, to trust. And our God has not left us or forsaken us. Our Father loves us. Help us to remember that there is, there is great evidence and proof of the love of our Father, and that is Jesus. Jesus who saves, Jesus who redeems, Jesus who forgives, Jesus who sends the Holy Spirit to be with us and in us until the day of our final redemption. Jesus, the proof of your love, the Holy Spirit, the evidence the certainty that you will never leave us and never forsake us. Remind us and help us remind the people around us as well. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.